Today's scripture reading comes from 3 John, verses 1 through 8. The elder to the beloved Gaius, whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are, who testified to your love before the church. You will do well to send them on their journey in a manner worthy of God. For they have gone out for the sake of the name, accepting nothing from the Gentiles. Therefore, we ought to support people like these, that we may be fellow workers for the truth. This is the word of the Lord. Well, I'm well into my fifth month as your pastor for the next generations. And is, this is my first opportunity to personally and publicly thank God for you and for giving me the opportunity to serve in this responsibility. You have welcomed me and my wife Sally and my daughter Christy with arms wide open. You have lavished us with extravagant grace and more kindness than we deserve. And you have commissioned me to spend time doing what I love to do, namely pursuing the vision for the next generation that I believe this church has, this vision that has gripped my life, shaped my ministry, defined my passions for the last three decades. And my aim this morning is to unpack a portion of that vision, and in so doing, I hope to be able to add a little kindling to the fire of your passion to pursue the next generation's a vision, pursue this vision for the next generation that I, I really believe you have. Pastor Mark set me up beautifully last week so that I'm really able to pick up right now where he left off. Remember this image that he gave us of the escalator that's going down um, to the destruction the, with this gravitational pull of the world taking us down? And the Christian life is not to go up an escalator to glory, but it is to go up the down escalator against the grain of the culture. And when I was sitting over there hearing him give that illustration, I said, yes, that's exactly what the Christian life is like, and that's the vision for the next generation, that the blinded eyes of our children would be opened to see the destruction at the bottom of the escalator and the glory that's at the top, and that they would turn and fix their eyes on the beauty of the one who goes before them. And as they go, that they would be well-equipped to walk in the way and to effectively and winsomely engage those who are coming down the other way with the gospel for the sake of Christ. And that they would be saturated with the word of God on their way up. And that they'd have a sword in their hand, the, 
that they could fight the fight of faith with all the way to the top and that they would endure the dangers and the toils and the snares that encounter them on the way, persevering, faithful to the end, where they would meet their Savior then face to face and hear his voice resounding through all of heaven saying, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. I know this vision is in your heart. I know this is what you want for our children. And I'm praying this morning that by the time we're done, that vision is going to be stirred up and closer to the surface of our corporate consciousness. And so to that end, I'd like to just pray and ask God to do that. So let's pray together. Father in heaven, now as we turn to 3 John... And focus our attention on this amazing verse that came from John's pen that he had no greater joy than to hear that his children were walking in the truth. Lord, my prayer is that we as a church would know that joy. That we would know the joy individually and corporately of our children our corporate children all 1400 plus of them lord would know the joy of seeing them walking in the truth and to the end lord we just want to give ourselves to hear your voice speak now to us in jesus name amen so let's consider for a minute as we open this text, the context in which John is making this amazing claim. Um, I said in the first service that uh, John is an old man now, probably in his 80s years, in his in his 80s. And I had an 87-year-old come up to me after the service and said, 87, 80 years old is not old. And so he's advanced in age, maybe we could say that. And he's writing to Gaius who he knew and he loved like a son. And John's aim in this letter is to address a problem that was caused by Diotrephes, one of the leaders in the church, who not only refused to welcome some traveling missionaries that John had commended, but he also was um, evicting people from his church who extended hospitality toward these missionaries. And as unhappy as John was about Diotrephes' behavior, he was very glad that Gaius, his son in the faith, by contrast, was being faithful. Gaius had welcomed these brothers who were strangers to him, but welcomed them as brothers, brothers in the Lord. And he extended hospitality and care to them. And when these man, men returned, he told John about their experience. And John was disturbed to hear about Diotrephes behavior but he was thrilled to hear about his son Gaius that he did the right thing and you can almost hear him saying way to go Gaius you knew what the right thing to do was and you did it listen to him in verses three and four where he says for I rejoice greatly Gaius when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth and then comes this amazing text I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Now, Third John, we could spend a month of sermons on this passage of Scripture, and I just want us to camp onto this fourth verse and just let its 
power and its reality sink in. And I want us to consider four reasons why John could even make such a claim. But before we do that, I want to just clarify that when John is speaking of his children here, he's not speaking biologically. He's speaking spiritually. Often in John's letters, he refers to the people that he's writing to as his children, sometimes even his young children. These are his spiritual children, those who have come to faith through his preaching and teaching ministry, as, and Gaius is one of those children. So it's important to say from the outset that the extreme joy that John is talking about here and this joy that I'm experiencing, I'm hoping that we will experience more and more as a congregation, is not only available to people with biological children, nor is it only available to people who uh, work with children in the church or wherever. This extreme joy comes, um, is available to anyone who is who is a spiritual parent, which we'll look at in just a minute. This extreme joy comes when we hear and observe anyone, young or old, related or not, that is walking in the truth. Now, I want to be quick to say, however, that I want to apply this text particularly to the young children that are growing up in this church and to the children that are growing up in your home That's my aim, but we need to understand that it's much broader than that, that any of us that are investing in the life of a children are can, of our spiritual children can experience this joy. And my earnest desire is that we as a congregation will pursue this joy, particularly with regard to our children. So how is it that John can make such a claim as this? Four reasons why I think he can. Number one, because John treasured the truth himself. He had devoted his life to proclaiming the truth, and nothing gave him more joy than seeing his people believe and embrace this truth and turn around and begin walking in the truth. He makes a similar statement, if you notice, in chapter 1 of his second letter, Verse 4, where he says, I rejoice greatly to find some of your children walking in the truth. And in fact, he begins that second letter by referring himself to himself as the elder to the church, which he refers to as the elect lady and her children. And he says this about her, whom I love in the truth. And not only I, but also all who know the truth, because the truth that abides in us and will be with us forever. The reason John experienced such extreme joy is because he loved the truth himself. He treasured that truth himself, and he was delighted when his children would walk in it. Secondly, John was rejoicing because he feared God, and he knew what was at stake if his children did not walk in the truth. As we'll see in a few minutes, John understood that everybody is going one way or the other. We're either walking in the truth or we're not. If John's children were not walking in the light of the truth, they were sliding down into the darkness of unbelief. They were either rising into everlasting joy or they were sinking into everlasting sorrow. John knew what the outcome would be for his children if they did not walk in the truth. And he trembled at the thought that those he loved 
like his own children, would give in to that way. John Engel James was a 19th century pastor in England for 50 years, one of my heroes. Um, One of the reasons he was one of my heroes is because he had a passion for the next generation and did much writing and preaching uh, specifically with regard to children. And one of the reasons I like him is because he wrote a book to his children called A Christian Father's Present to His Children. And in that um, in that book, he, you hear this father's heart trembling over the thought of his children not walking in the truth. Listen to him as he writes, But how it would embitter our last moments and plant our dying pillow with thorns to leave you, children, on earth in an unconverted state, following us to the grave but not to heaven. Or should you be called to die before us? How should we sustain the dreadful thought that at the very next moment, after you had passed beyond our kind attentions, you would be received to the torments which know neither end nor mitigation? And when you had departed under such circumstances, what could heal our wounds or dry our tears? What then, my children, are all the worldly acquirements and possessions without piety or faith? Original genius, a vigorous understanding, a well-stored mind, all this adorned by the most amiable temper and most insinuating address will neither comfort us under trials of life nor save their lovely possessor from the worm that never dies and the fire that is never quenched. Oh, no, they may qualify for earth, but not for heaven. God forbid that... The children of College Park qualify for earth, but not for heaven. Number three, John rejoiced because he was seeing the fruit of his labor. For the believer who loves the truth, there is joy whenever we see a child of God walking in the truth, whether we know him or not. When we hear testimonies like Jamie's this morning of how God brought him out of darkness and into the light, we rejoice and we clap and we say, praise the Lord because we're rejoicing that he's walking in the truth. That can happen no matter who the person is, whether we know him or not. But when God uses us to bring a person to faith in Christ, we rejoice even more. I My guess is that if that jailer could have heard Jamie's testimony this morning, or his sister could have heard that testimony, or that uncle that had written that letter, they would be rejoicing all the more to hear this child of theirs proclaiming the truth and walking, giving evidence that he's walking in the truth. When we have labored and perhaps even given our whole lives to show our children how to walk in the truth, when we pour out our heart and soul in prayer for them and they walk, our hearts leap for joy. And I dare say, we rejoice with John and say, there's no greater joy than this. Number four, I believe John was rejoicing because Gaius was walking in the truth, not just standing in the truth. There would be no joy if all Gaius did was give lip service to the truth. Certainly, Gaius was very happy that 
or John was very happy that Gaius knew the truth. And it's crucial that the truth be known. Truth has to precede walking. But we, so we must be devoted to imparting the truth. But knowing and understanding the truth is going to be of little use unless our children walk in it. In John's first letter, again, verse 5, chapter 1, John writes these words. This is the message that we have heard from him and proclaim to you, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. We're not walking in the truth, even if we say we are, we're not, if we're not walking in the truth. There are many people riding down that escalator who have grown up in Christian homes. Many who have heard the truths all their lives. They will even tell you, as John says, they have fellowship with Christ. They will say they know Jesus and they're following him. But they've never changed directions. They're still coasting down that escalator to destruction. We want our children to know the truth, but we must not be content until we see them walking in the truth. God forbid that the children of College Park Church grow up to be Romans 121 people of whom Paul says, although they knew God, they did not honor God as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Or that God forbid that they become Isaiah 29, 13 people of whom the Lord says, draw near to me with their mouth and honor me while their hearts are far from me. Instead, may the Lord grant our children to become Third John 1, 4, people who are walking in the truth to the great joy of their spiritual parents. So how do we pursue that joy at College Park? I believe there are three main t- priorities that we need to maintain. The first is we've got to be serious about imparting the truth. Truth precedes walking. Ten years ago, Jar- George Barna did what was probably the most extensive research on um, children and faith. And he wrote this book called Transforming Children into Spiritual Champions, Why Children Should Be Your Church's Number One Priority. And he challenges the church and parents to consciously raise children with a biblical worldview. And he identifies four cornerstones in doing that. Number one, the Bible needs to be established and understood as the only trustworthy source of wisdom and truth. Secondly, the children need to have a commanding knowledge of biblical content. Third, there has to be the identification of organizing principles, which is a mouthful and we need Barna's help here to understand. He says, our research finds that most churches teach good biblical content but fail to tie it together into a logical, comprehensive framework that makes sense and provides practical counsel. We must assist young people in connecting the dots of God's principles so that they draw a striking picture of truth and purpose. And the fourth fourth cornerstone, he says, is a burning desire to obey God. Without a burning desire... 
or a passion to follow Jesus Christ, our children will not walk. They will know the truth, but they will not walk in it. Deuteronomy 6 is very helpful for for us here. We've heard it probably often in the context of parenting. You shall love the Lord your God with all your hearts, parents, church, teachers, and with all your soul, with all your might. And these words that I'm commanding you today shall be on your hearts. Teach them diligently to your children. First, the word is on our heart. This passion to follow Jesus is on our hearts. And now point our children to the way. If we want our children to passionately follow Jesus, we as their parents and teachers and the people who care about the outcome of their faith must first be passionately followed in Jesus Christ. It cannot just be in our heads. We can't, we can't just clothe ourselves with a religious veneer on Sunday morning and forget about it the rest of the week. Our children will see right through that. Let's be a people who burn with a passion for the truth. That's infinitely more important, I think, than what we're teaching them in Sunday school classes, is that they see this lived out authentically in this congregation. Which takes me to my second priority, which is the strategic support and encouragement and equipping of parents. The people who have the most access and the best opportunity and the greatest potential influence, not to mention the spiritual, biblical responsibility for helping children walk in the truth is their parents. And yet, as parents, we must ask if we are making the most of the opportunities we have. My concern is that we run with our children in 20 different directions, filling their lives with everything that this world has to offer them, everything this this world says that they must have, and these are good things, many of them good things that they're they're involved in, but often so consuming that there's little time or opportunity left to impart the truth to them, much less walk in it with them. So we must be careful as parents not to trade the greater things for the lesser things. What will it profit a child to be an accomplished pianist but spend his life as a fool? What will it benefit a child to have all the friends in the world but not a friend in Jesus on Judgment Day? What good will it do for a child to marry well but never sit at the marriage feast of the Lamb? What will it benefit a child who makes it to the national championship on his way to destruction? What will it profit a child to gain the whole world and lose his soul? Imparting the truth to our children is essential. And we pray that it takes precedence over everything else that parents do at home. It will take precedence over everything that we do in Next Generation Ministries at College Park. We cannot back away from this. We do not do it perfectly here, and we will keep working to make it better. We will labor to keep people in front of your children who are walking in the truth themselves and who burn with a delight in the Lord and who love them relentlessly and will devote themselves to imparting the truth to them. But the fact of the matter is, our couple hours a week is not going to be a substitute for the passionate and rigorous parental pursuit of this vision and this unsurpassable joy. Therefore, we will continue to encourage and support and challenge and develop resources for parents in their parental role. 
In this same study that Barnard did, he asked churches how they measured success with regard to their children and youth ministry. Most of them, he said, pointed to growing numbers of students enrolled or consistent attendance or the completion of a curriculum in in an allotted time or parental satisfaction or minimal discipline problems and so on. But Barna said that the most effective churches had a very different indicator of success. Barna said, number one, these churches were experiencing the widespread involvement of parents in the spiritual development of children. The effort to nurture children is deemed deficient in these churches if it is not led by the parents themselves in close partnership with the church. A second indicator, he said, of success is that these churches were strategically equipping parents to help children develop spiritually. And third, these churches were witnesses witnessing elements of transformation in the children's lives, not merely the recitation of facts, but lifestyle transitions that suggest a deeper renovation of the heart and spirit, which is another way of saying they were walking in the truth. The third priority is prayer. Of the churches that Barna studied that had effective ministries by these standards, Barna said, in my judgment, the prayer investment made by the effective churches may be the single most important venture of their ministries. I found that the most productive children's ministry have five streams of prayer offered to God. The first stream is of those from teachers and youngsters, of teachers of the youngsters. Teachers are encouraged to pray for each student on a regular basis. Number two, teachers pray as a team, usually on a weekly basis, along with other staff and church leaders associated with the ministry to children. The, inv- the involvement, number three, of intercessors who volunteer to faithfully pray for the teachers and students. Number four, min- because the ministry to children is highly valued in these churches, it is not surprising to find that the entire congregation frequently prays for that ministry. And number five, the fifth avenue of prayer emanates from these parents. Some of these churches organize prayer times for parents, link parents with prayer partners, and so on. And let me just say, um, there are all kinds of opportunities for you to invest prayer and all sorts of other effort. And and I just want to say about the nursery ministry, you think, how do we develop spiritually how do we nurture the faith of an infant one of the most powerful ministries that a nursery ministry can have is the ministry of prayer when you take this little child into your hands and pray this vision into their lives god is working in our nursery right now and he's more than just keeping children busy and getting keeping their diapers changed and keeping their stomachs fed god is at work in our infants in the nursery and we can be a part of that especially through prayer Randy and Kathy Westland are good friends in Minnesota. We've been friends for 30 years. And several years ago, Kathy came back from a uh, family reunion that she had of the family on her dad's side, sharing stories that she had learned about her great uncle Gus. Uncle Gus was a man of prayer, a man who earnestly prayed for his children. 
Gus's usual prayer, she learned, was at the foot of his four-poster bed. And when he knelt to pray, he would grab a hold of that post as he prayed, and so much so that cousins were all saying that he had worn the finish off the bedpost where he put his hand um, day after day, praying for the next generations. And I, I heard that story. I just said, that's the kind of dad I want to be. I want to wear the finish off my bedpost, praying for my children. And I've shared that story over the, for many years, okay, trying to encourage dads, especially I say, come on, dads, let's be men who wear the finish off our bedpost, praying for our family. Earlier this year, we're anticipating moving to Indianapolis and um, coming to College Park Church, and the Westlands and Sally and I were talking, and we were putting two and two together, find out that un- great Uncle Gus lived in Indianapolis, and lo and behold, Gus Lambertis was a long-term member here at College Park, which amazed me that this man who had inspired me and challenged me to pray was a uh, a pillar in the church that I was being called to serve. This legacy we enjoy right now as a church. We are experiencing the blessing of Gus's life, not least of which is in his daughter, Elaine Erickson, who is now faithfully walking in the truth along with her children And I really encourage you to go to our website. We've reposted on our blog an article that um, Elaine wrote about Gus several years ago. And just be encouraged that here here among us was a man whose number, I pray, will increase here at College Park. And may his example inspire us as a people to be wearing down the finish on our bedposts, praying earnestly for the next generation. Now, I want to say a word to those of you that I'm assuming in a crowd this size are many. Those of you who right now are hearing us say there's no greater joy than when our children are walking in the truth and yet are thinking to yourself, there is no greater sorrow for a parent when they're not. There is great sorrow, extreme sorrow, when our children turn their back on Christ and forsake the truth and are walking in darkness. Charles Spurgeon said this in a sermon 100 years or so ago. He said, No cross is so heavy to carry as a living cross. Next to a woman who is bound to an ungodly husband or a man who is unequally yoked with a graceless wife, I pity the father whose children are not walking in the truth, who yet is himself an earnest Christian. Must it always be so that the father shall go to the house of God and his son to the alehouse? Shall the father sing the songs of Zion and the son and daughter pour forth the ballads of Belial? Must we come to the communion table alone and our children be separated from us? Must we go on the road to holiness and the way of peace and behold our dearest ones traveling with the multitude, 
the broad way, despising what we prize, rebelling against him whom we adore. God grant it may not be so. And yet I fear that at this moment, I know at this moment, there are those represented by the people in this room for whom it is so. And I want to give a word to those of you who are carrying such a living cross. In fact, in a few minutes, I want to give you an opportunity to stand and let me pray for you. Um, For those of you who, with Paul, are saying, I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart, for I could wish that I myself were accursed, Paul says, and cut off from Christ for the sake of my brothers, my kinsmen, or my children, according to the flesh. But before I invite you to stand, I want to say a word to you, four words actually. Number one, parents or those of you carrying a living cross for anyone, beware of the accuser of the brethren. Your ancient foe, the devil, is a liar. And he's a murderer from the beginning. And every time I hold the banner up for parents, and I challenge them to be vigilant and faithful and take their calling seriously, there are those in the room who are feeling indicted. Those who are tempted to believe the lives and to think that they're being punished Many of you, I believe, have been faithful parents who should not listen to their accuser. Perhaps you are aware of the ways that you have sinned against your children. If you have, then confess your sin and look to the cross for forgiveness and trust the living God who takes even our sin and uses it for good. If you have missed opportunities or if your weakness as a parent has been exposed. If as you look back and there are things that you would have done differently, then boast with Paul in your weakness and trust the one whose power is made perfect in weakness. Your imperfections as a parent cannot restrain the mighty hand of God who will accomplish his glorious purposes that have been established for you and your children before the foundation of the world. Secondly, surrender all worldly claim upon their lives in hope. When Sally and I dedicated our two daughters to the Lord, we made five promises. The second promise was that we would surrender worldly claim on their lives in the hope that they would belong wholly to God forever. When we as parents receive our children as gifts, God retains the title. Our children belong to God. He has sovereign rights to lead them where he will and to work in them everything that is pleasing in his sight. And we do that in hope that they will belong to the Lord forever. So when we surrender any claim that we have on our children, we are trusting him to call them to himself in his way and on his timetable. No matter how frightened or how discouraged or are hopeless or how angry we may feel. Would it make a difference to you parents 
who are carrying such a living cross, if you knew that the foolishness and rebellion that disturbs you so much that you see in your child was the very means that God was using to bring your child to a saving encounter with the living Christ. All of us want our children to grow up in a Christian home. We want them to hear the truth. We want them to embrace that truth young in their life and then walk in it right on into eternity. But we have heard far too many testimonies like the one that we heard today to know that God's way is not, that's not always God's way of bringing Christian children or children of Christian parents to faith. And we must trust him in those moments and trust our hearts to his his way and his purpose for our children. Number two, remember, it ain't over till it's over. One of my spiritual children was 87 years old when I met her. Her name was Ellen Olson. She lived until she was 96. And at 87, the Lord transformed her out of darkness into light in a an amazing, glorious way. Ellen told me that her mother was a religious person, made sure she went to Sunday school. I don't know a whole lot about that mother's practice, but I've often wondered if she poured out her heart and soul to the Lord for her rebellious daughter and shed tears for her daughter, and she never knew the outcome of her daughter's life because her daughter, she was long gone by the time her daughter came to faith. We must not cease to trust the Lord as long as he gives us breath and as long as he gives our children breath, there is hope for them. Finally, we must bow before the sovereign hand of God. If the king's heart is like a stream of water in the hand of the Lord and he turns it wherever he will, so also is the heart of your child. Nothing is outside God's power. Nothing can thwart his purposes. Even the heart of the most rebellious child, we must trust in the goodness of God. Ultimately and dreadfully, we must acknowledge and put our hands over our mouth in humble submission to our God who has chosen that some will be vessels of wrath. And the thought of our our children perishing in unbelief is a horrible thought. And it leaves us wondering, how could we ever have joy in heaven knowing that our children are lost forever? Several years ago, my pastor of 33 years, John Piper, when he was preaching on Romans 9, 1 to 5, in the text that I quoted earlier where Paul wished himself accursed for the sake of his kinsmen, John Piper posed this question to us. He said, Will we then be sad throughout eternity because those who are accursed and cut off from Christ in hell? Will heaven be a place of eternal grief? The answer is no. And he quoted Jonathan Edwards, who, all, who answered the question like this, quote, With respect to any affection that the godly have had to the finally retrobate, the love of God will wholly swallow it up and cause it wholly to cease. John Piper concluded by saying, those of us who die in their sinful rebellion, we say it now with tears, will not have the power to hold heaven hostage with their own misery. 
Here we groan and we weep. There we are consumed with the glory of Christ. Let Bethlehem be a place where it is safe to grieve for wayward children and a place where parents who grieve find grace and support and not our indictments. I believe the College Park is a safe place to grieve for wayward children. And I pray that it will always be so. And I would like those grieving parents among us to stand and pray now as the rest of us just extend our arms toward them. And I would like to conclude now with this prayer for you. So let's pray. Father in heaven, I want to begin now by thank you, thanking you for bringing these parents to faith. Thank you for all that you did to turn their hearts of stone into hearts of flesh. Thank you for opening their eyes to see the beauty of Christ and the joy that they have turned their backs on. Thank you for giving them the grace and the power to turn away from the gravitational pull of their own hearts and to follow you. And Lord, what you have done for them, I pray that you would do for their house, for their children, Lord. As I stand with these parents in humble submission to your will and your way and your timetable, we ask that you would grant to these parents the courage and the faith to believe that their children will be saved. Grant death to these children, that is, death to the sin nature that they have inherited as sons and daughters of Adam and raise them up to a new life in Christ Jesus. In Jesus' name, we ask that you would lead them out of darkness into your glorious light. We ask that you would rescue them from the kingdom of Satan and make them citizens of your unshakable kingdom. Let them be poor in this world if they must, but make them rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom which you have promised to all who love you. And we want them, Lord, to have you because you are infinitely more valuable than anything else. Destroy every rival to your throne in their lives. Take away every God in their lives except God Almighty. Take away from their affections every treasure but the treasure of Jesus Christ, their Savior. Neutralize the power of every spirit except the power of your Holy Spirit working righteousness and peace within them. Bring every thought, every desire, every dream, every word, every act under your divine control. Overcome the deadly gravitational pull of their sin and turn them around that they might live and move up the escalator, resting their hope and rooting their being in you. May not one of these children be lost. May these parents and this church one day soon know the extreme joy when we hear these children and all of our children are walking in the truth. Make it so, dear Jesus, for the glory of your name and for our everlasting joy, we pray. Amen. Now let's all stand, please. And I want to just say that as you leave this morning, uh, there's a table out in the atrium that the Next Generation team is out there. And we've uh, got lots of opportunities coming up over the next several months for you to invest in the Next Generation and to pursue this joy with us for the sake of the next generation.
And um, had I had time in the service, I would want it to end with this essay by John William Smith. It's a very inspiring essay entitled Run, Tammy, Run. And I'm not going to have time to read it for you. But uh, if you go to the website, look up my manuscript online in a couple day or two, you'll be able to read it. I really encourage you to read it. It will inspire you. But let me just uh, instead uh, to pronounce on you this blessing from the Lord. May the Lord bless you and your children after you and keep you. May he make his face shine on you and your children, our children, and be gracious to you and to them. May he lift up his countenance, his smile on you and on our children and give you everlasting, incredible, extreme joy. And all God's people said, amen.